0: Hello everyone and welcome to Side Dish. This is an IFT podcast that dishes up perspectives from multiple disciplines relating to the science of food and developing your career in this rapidly changing ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. It wasn't that long ago that the generally accepted view was that growing food indoors for commercial harvest and sale into the retail distribution system was considered not to be viable. By the time you built the indoor facility, installed the expensive equipment, and then paid for all the electricity for lighting, pumps and all that sort of stuff, it was just not considered to be commercially viable. That view seems to have rapidly changed. And the current thinking might be better characterized as maybe we cannot afford not to grow at least some of our food indoors. Today, we're joined by Jim Pantello, and Jim is an indoor farm operator and advisor. Welcome to the show, Jim. Bruce Perkin, thank you so much. Great to be here. It's wonderful to have you, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So, Jim, you have a really diverse and interesting background and, and really not one that's typically associated with being a farmer. Can I ask you tell us a little bit about your background and how you made that transition
1: into indoor vertical farming? Yes, yes, that's a, a, a question that I like to to answer, Bruce, because it did come at a, a time of life that uh, it, I think all of us face where you get to a point and you l- look at your life and think, well, is this all there is? But it, it came to me uh, before the, the big 5 uh, just about seven years ago now, and it was in the summer of 2014 after a 20-plus year Career in technology, half of that spent with Hewlett Packard, where I again said, Is this all there is? And I, I, before that big birthday, I said, Well, let's think about something else for the second half of our life. And it was at that point in the summer of 2014 where I came upon indoor vertical farming for food production or growing food with no natural sunlight completely indoors. And over the next year, I had spent immersing myself in the industry, meeting as many people as I possibly could, going to conferences, reading just voraciously, and and again, sort of leaving behind that old career in technology and trying to reinvent myself. And so that was, again, that'll be seven years this July, and it's been a really interesting journey. I'm so excited to share that with you, Bruce, and again, get your audience excited about this nascent industry.
0: Wow, the tech guy that became the farmer. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> so, so why is it that indoor farming right now seems to be a concept whose idea, whose time has come?
1: Well, when you think about where we are in the world today with our population, and this is something that I say all indoor farmers and those that are concerned with, you know, our our world, and I and I put the indoor farmer in there because there's an intrinsic concern about our world, and when I say that, and when I say we speak and sing from the same hymnal, That hymnal is, is that here we are in 2021, by the year 2050, uh, we know our world's population will grow from seven plus billion to perhaps exceed 10 billion, Uh, you know, that's going to, you know, that's going to be mouths to feed when we also look at our, our, our ability to feed people and land. Uh, the availability of arable farmland, which is, is shrinking and at that point may or may not be available to us uh, as we have it today or in the past. You think about water resources, Bruce, and, and it all combines into sort of a, a lot of scary da- data. And that's what kind of inspired me mm. when I thought about the data, thought about my children and future generations in terms of these challenges, which you, you cannot deny. And it, it, I, a cold chill went down my spine and I said, I got to do something here. So that's that's really what I think is motivating a lot of people and industries and investors to get involved with this because time's a wasting.
0: So, so is you, do you think it's more uh, commercially viable now than it
1: was? Well, you know, you you look at technology and you look at where we've come with the the primary factors of that technology, like LED lighting, environmental controls, which includes your HVAC, how you move uh, air, how you heat air, how you treat air, you know, all those technologies. And again, with the primary driver being LED technology with efficiencies increasing beyond where they've been in many, many, many years. Uh, the last 5 to 10 years in terms of making those great advances. So that all leads to this industry being more commercialized if you will from a what I call TCEA, what others call TCEA or total controlled environment agriculture because when we talk about technology and we relate it to controlled environment agriculture that brings in a lot of other form factors of growing Bruce, things like greenhouses where you do have some natural ambient sunlight or shipping containers where that's a tcea nothing no sunlight coming in there or again warehouses which has been my experience uh, growing in large scale commercially in warehouses so all these things add together and again we're at a nascent point where you've got a lot of great stories a lot of money going towards it and you know it's i guess you would call it a green rush
0: <laughs> that's a good way to describe it yeah so to talk talk to me a little bit about the yield per acre I mean obviously you can't um, I can't imagine putting indoors all those masses of acres of, of farm that we see out say in the California Valley where they grow all the lettuce and what have you right at the moment outdoors I can't just see that indoors so How does that work? How does the yield play out? Tell me a little bit about that.
1: It's a very simple equation, Bruce, and I I can see how that would, you'd think, well, how does it work? And it's all just a simple word called stacking, hence the word vertical farming. If you, and we always used to say this at my first farm, if you simply took an acre of land and then stacked another acre of land on top of it, and another acre of land on top of it. What would that actually look like? And so I'm sure many of your guests hopefully can just Google indoor farming systems, and you'll see these images of floor-to-ceiling stacked, if you will, produce. And think I often say, think about uh, when you go to Costco, and you see those floor-to-ceiling, warehouse-style structures, but put plants on them with lights. And so that's just one one methodology, or, or not methodology, rather, form factor as, as we use. You know, you'll see grow form factors, Bruce, in a circular barrel style. You'll see tower gardens, which are Uh, kind of like large tree structures. Again, you'll see the Costco-like structures. You'll see what our friends at Plenty, the very large farm here in California, which um, I'm sure many listeners have heard about, uh, use what's called the Zip Grow Tower, which is a vertical floor-to-ceiling grow system. So, you know, it's just all over the board in terms of growing form factors indoors.
0: Right. Right, and, and with the evolution of LED light technology, it seems like we can now tune the wavelength. Does that tuning of wavelength happen to uh, add to either the yield of the plant or even better, maybe tuning the, uh, the, the wavelength to optimize the production of uh, certainly key um, micronutrients or
1: phytochemicals? You are absolutely spot on, Bruce Perkin. And when you look at some of the research that's happening today, that is the exact, um, that's what they're trying to do, not only with the light spectrum, but also with the seed and the germplasm, the DNA of the plant, if you will. But when you look at that, and I am not a plant scientist, but I will say, and I will do shout outs To those that are researching that very um, area in terms of whether it's a a more peppery arugula or a a more sweeter basil or a larger leaf or, 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 you know, again, as we say in science, the phenotyping of the plant. And I mentioned the seed, and that's the genotyping of the plant, if you will. So for all the food technologists out there, indeed, look no further than what our friends in Washington, D.C. at the Foundation for Food and Agricultural Research are doing, FAR, FFAR. Uh, They're involved right now with a a many-year program called PIP, Precision Indoor Plants. And that PIP program brings in growers and seed companies um, and others in the industry to deal with those very issues of of light and, and again, phenotyping of a plant, uh, flavor profiles, etc. So uh, the other that I like to point out over in uh, uh, the Netherlands, of course, is our friends at Wageningen University, but Plant Lab. Plant Lab is a separate company in the Netherlands that's been focused on how to really opt in the, optimize light spectrum You'll also see other major universities here in the U.S., uh, Michigan State, Dr. Eric Runkel, doing great work with light spectrum um, and elsewhere. So, yeah, that's all a big part of it, Bruce, how that technology can actually manipulate a plant and flavor and biomass. Yes.
0: So let's flip the 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 conversation to the to the downside. What are the challenges of, of indoor farming? Is it you know, it bees how how do you pollination and um, tell me more about the the downside.
1: Yeah, so well there's there's many obviously and with nascent industries it's not unlike, you know, software uh or the internet if you will 25 30 years ago. For larger operations or those that want to grow in large scale commercially, not necessarily the smaller mom and pop or thousand square foot facilities. When you talk about the larger facilities, Bruce, one of the major challenges really is the capital. It's incredibly capital intensive to get involved into not only sequestering and retrofitting that building, if you will, and we're talking about buildings now again, fully enclosed environments, not necessarily a greenhouse or, in fact, a container or shipping can. We're talking about warehouses of anywhere between fifty to two hundred and fifty thousand square feet. Mm. And so, when you talk about the the capital that's required to engage, that's that's one. And obviously, the other is is you're right. You mentioned the biological part of it. You know, to make a plant grow inside a building using only LED lights and all the other components that are involved in it from an environmental control, as well as a a biological and agronomy perspective, you know, many of these indoor farms have started and failed because they simply couldn't dial it in based on the building, the facility, and that could have had to do with a lot of different things, whether it was energy or whether it was plumbing, if you will, or a whole bunch of other factors. But to your question, major challenges are capital getting in from a building perspective. And then you can just go from there in terms of some of the other areas that could be based on biology or again, other areas. So Cost is really a big one, Bruce, when you're talking about large-scale commercial production of indoor farms for, for food production. We're not talking about cannabis because we well know that there are some multimillion-dollar cannabis operators out there doing things technologically that are incredible, but we are talking about food here, of course.
0: Right. So clearly, food the investment from the food community is there. I mean, it was just earlier this week that we uh, all saw an announcement that uh, Bowery Farms in New York had been the recipient of a $300 million investment which put their valuation around $2.3 billion. So clearly uh, the large-scale investors have worked it out. And as I, as I understand it, the, if you just look at uh, 2019 alone, there was $1.9 billion in funding raised for indoor farms. So do you think from an investment point of view that uh, that, again... It's the investment community that have seen the return on investment here and the potential here and, and uh, giving us a, a steer in, in this direction.
1: I, I could, could not agree with you more, Bruce. And there are some other great examples beyond Bowery. Uh, and oh, by the way, a shout out to, to, to them. I'm uh, very friendly with them. Irving Fain is their CEO, and they are over the moon uh, with respect to this infusion and uh, uh, m- my won't even be an assumption is is that they'll do very good things with that that infusion and uh, and that is around again r&d and other areas and you look at what they've done with their new r&d facility just just connected to their building there uh, in kearney new jersey their their home office is in new york yes but they've uh, created what's called Farmex. And that will in uh, indeed focus on growing strawberries, and uh, that's all all public at this point, and they're they're doing great things. So, I would also point out, Bruce, that you know that the the folks at Arrow Farms. Uh, were involved in a SPAC recently uh, through, through the Spring Valley Acquisition Corporation. Their valuation, AeroFarms Now, is I think at about uh, 1.2 or 1.4, so kudos to them. Of course, the other big story uh, is the App Harvest story in Kentucky, and uh, their valuation uh, at, a, a, at more than $2 billion, and all of the folks that have been involved in those um, those investments and actions has just been, uh, as we all say, a rising tide lifts all boats. <laughs> Floats all boats or something of that nature. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. So it's all very interesting
0: and good news. Yeah, absolutely. So it's often said that we learn more from our mistakes than our successes. And I, I know for sure that that's, that's the way my head works. Are you able to share some of the stories of some of the issues that have happened as this has developed and emerged that that helps us
1: understand and puts in context this industry? I can. I can, Bruce. And I, I I've always appreciated talking about failure because you're right, we learn so much more through failure. And I can, you know, I think I can. I, well, I know I can legally speak about the two farms that I've been involved with that that are no longer around. And so I think that uh, I guess I'd want to say that I'm 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 hopefully very clear and free to speak about what I believe were some mistakes that were made. And, uh, I think that the admission to those kinds of mistakes. Uh, are really important uh, for those that are going forward or those that are thinking about getting involved. So number one, Bruce, is, and this is my own personal experience, uh, uh, really from my first farm. So number one is where that building is located and how much that building is going to cost you, whether you buy it or you lease it it is imperative and if you look at some of the major indoor vertical farms in this country today they're not in high rent districts you know uh, Arrow Farms is in in newark new jersey newark new jersey is is a is a is a strong and fine place but they are working very hard to get beyond where newark new jersey has traditionally been and God bless them. And so if you keep looking further, you look at what Bowery is doing with their expansion to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, clearly over the last 50 years since the steel industry has been challenged, that that part of our our, our world, it, it needs that infusion. So in fact, Bowery is taking over a, uh, old uh, steel mill in Bethlehem. You look at plenty out here in California that are expanding to Compton. You know, they're building a hundred plus thousand square foot facility in Compton. And so when you think about where you locate these facilities and you think about the advantages of, of tax incentives and a, a lower lower cost of entry. For your real estate, because as we've all know, as we all know that this is in part a, a major real estate play. So that's first thing I want to put in in your head and your audience's head. The other thing is, Bruce, when you get into these buildings, it's imperative that you make that. And we're back to that capital number again. You've got to make those capital equipment expenditures up front to help you with your labor nugget down down downstream. In other words, if you if you can purchase that those pieces of equipment that will save you money on human hands touching your product and touching your, um, your touching your product, then that's really important. So number one is where your building is and what you're paying for it. Number two is the in- entry and, and you must have make those expenditures for capital equipment. Um, and number three and, and actually number three should probably be number one and that really is is people you've got to have the right management team you've got to have the right crew you've got to have the right people and 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 people will bring you glory or or t- take you down the wrong path whatever it is it's <laughs> you i think you know that people really yeah. are everything so yeah. that that's what i say bruce yeah wow so, so, Jim,
0: focusing a little more on on your role in, in this industry, and I understand that one of the roles you play is a, is an, a, as an ambassador for industry for NASA, effectively providing a bridge between NASA and the indoor farming community. I wonder if you can help us understand where NASA is at in the preparation of production of fresh foods in space. And I, know, I know that sounds really, really science fiction, but... I was hoping you might be able to tell us exactly what your role is and possibly help us get a sense of how far along the NASA scientists are and and what we all might be able to do to contribute to that.
1: Absolutely. Great question. So for full disclosure, Bruce, I am an incredibly unofficial, I will repeat, unofficial ambassador to our friends at the NASA NASA Crop Sciences team at Kennedy Space Center, and this relationship that I've had with them goes back a few years. I had the great fortune of traveling to the Crop Sciences, the Utilization and Life Sciences office at Kennedy Space Center. That team, and, and, and when I traveled there in February of 2020, right before COVID, that team really are tasked for Growing crops for short and long term space exploration. And so, short term clearly being on the ISS now, and then in the near, very near future, the lunar outpost, and then as we all know, Mars. And so, they are absolutely head down, as they have been for decades actually, on how to address short and long term space exploration and how to feed folks, and ultimately how to provide the calories and the protein. The biomass, the roughage, the, the the true food, the whole food, if you will, whether that's a leafy green or a fruiting plant, Bruce, that's what they're trying to do. Or a tuber, uh, that's what they're, they're trying to accomplish. So uh, what I have been doing with them is introducing and bringing forth industry to engage with them on technology that NASA requires. And what does that mean? At the present time, NASA, uh, this particular group is released and provided to me, and I'm happy to provide to anyone listening uh, right now, is what they call the list of gaps. And that's a Excel document of about 50 plus line items, no more than 60 at this point, I don't believe. And that will detail all the areas of technology that NASA needs help with, in terms of crop production in space. They also have provided a one page document called the Selection Factors document. And that Selection Factors will help others to, or help industry to really understand it a bit better. But as we go further, Bruce, there are some vehicles that NASA has out there online. And one that they like me to refer industry to is the TRISH site. That acronym, T R I S H, stands for, and forgive me for being so long winded. The Translational Research Institute for Space Health, TRISH. And that is, again, a vehicle for industry to say, hey, I think I might be able to help you, NASA, with X, Y, or Z technology that could, again, answer these short- and long-term space exploration needs and requirements. Because, as you were telling me a little bit earlier, Bruce, you certainly can wrap your head around short-term uh, space exploration, but when we have to go to Mars, we cannot send Elon Musk's Dragon uh, rocket to go up there to resupply, which is the way it happens now, as you know. That that takes few days. This is going to take a few months. So ultimately, we've got to be able to grow on our own if we're going to talk about Mars and long-term space exploration. So that's a very long-winded answer, Bruce, to that. But that's my, again, very unofficial role with NASA, and I welcome anyone to reach out. To myself, and I'm happy to share some of these assets that I've been talking about: these websites, links, content, etc.
0: I know that's that's really awesome because it's uh, it's quite amazing to to think about indoor farming as a solution for the planet we currently live on. But to think about indoor farming as an absolute requirement is not just a a choice; it is the only choice for once we uh, break beyond the the bounds of um, uh, of the uh, immediate uh, environment around our own planet so so not only NASA but if I look at your background you've also been involved in um, indoor farming not just in North America but on a much more global front um, so many different countries and and obviously we're the focus on one of the countries that that probably is, further advanced on indoor farming than any other country in the world, which is, of course, Holland, um, the, the Netherlands. So you must be ideally placed to give us a view on what the future of indoor farming might look like from a global perspective. So what do you see in the future, the types of crops and yields? And tell, tell us more about what
1: that looks like. Well, yeah, Bruce. And thanks for the shout out on, on the connections to the Netherlands. I want to really uh, answer that question, expanding it. But when you talk about straight away crops right now everybody knows it's a leafy green play and that's all based on technology and our ability to put photons onto a plant and how much that costs us and oh by the way that all leads into the what we all call unit economics those unit economics got to be able to compete with field grown stuff so you will Bruce see uh, uh, beyond leafy greens uh, again fruiting crops I mentioned FAR a little bit earlier they're working on that through the PIP initiative you know, you mentioned bees a, a second ago. There is a very interesting indoor vertical farm growing in containers in New York, New Jersey called Oishi Berry, O I S H I I, Oishi Berry, which I think means delicious in Japanese. They're actually growing strawberries quite expensively, I might add. So the unit economics don't equate, but they do have customers because these strawberries are so incredible. They're a Japanese style strawberry that are from a certain highland area of Japan where they have very cool nights and mild days. And the strawberries are incredibly delicate and wonderful. But they have perfected the art of releasing pollinators or bees into these containers in order to to bring it from the flowering to the fruiting phase. And it's just brilliant. Wow. So I, I love that. But wow. Bruce, if you don't mind, I would like to do a couple shout outs here for the transnational relationships that are before us as it relates to the Netherlands and what I've been involved with, not only with uh, the United States, uh, but also with the University of California, uh as many of your listeners know uh the netherlands holland which i think the, the formal word now is the netherlands are the number two exporter of fresh fruits and vegetables on planet earth and there's a reason why they've, they're that way they've been you know you know um, perfecting the art of controlled environment agriculture for over a hundred years and we have something to learn from them so so first and foremost Again, on Thursday, June 10th, I will be hosting a uh, virtual gathering called Holland on the Hill. And Holland on the Hill will be coming from Capitol Hill. It'll include some congressional staffers from both sides of the aisle. It will have uh, the uh, ambassador of the Netherlands, who I'll be introducing, as well as some really interesting people on a hour-and-a-half panel to include. Uh, Jonathan Webb, the CEO of App Harvest and others. And this this gathering, if you will, really is how we, the USDA, the Department of Ag, the United States, can work with the Netherlands and share, again, that 100 years worth of controlled environment agriculture expertise. So that's one thing, Bruce. The other thing that I wanted to share, the other collaborative agreement that I wanted to share is with the University of California and the Netherlands, who together with their vast resources, and as we all know, the UC, as we call them, have been uh, leaders in, in California agriculture for well over 100 years also. But again, the goal for that collaboration uh, with the UC and the Dutch will be for the advancement of technology in the areas of controlled environment agriculture. And so on the 29th of June, we're going to have a virtual signing ceremony with the Dutch government, the University of California, and a host, a host of other participants, uh, a who's who, if you will, in the controlled environment, indoor vertical farming world. And so i uh, what I want to share again with you and the audience is, is that these relationships are expanding and growing. It's incumbent upon all industry and academia and anybody that has any interest in this industry to participate in this. Um, We'll have, of course, the links for the um, audience to uh, come and attend um, the Holland on the Hill event, if you will. And um, again, for those that Care to reach out to me on the others with the University of California. I welcome uh, anyone to reach out. So I wanted to share that with you, Bruce, and the audience.
0: Very good, very good. So for somebody who feels like they really want to get involved with the indoor farming, what's your advice as to the best steps to to take to to get it get
1: engaged? That's a great question, Bruce. And of course, I take a. a, a, a you know, a piece from my own experience, which was, I, I don't know if I'd recommend it because I literally immersed myself in indoor farming uh, on a daily basis, about seven, eight hours a day for about six months. So I wouldn't recommend that. But what I would recommend is probably to start with not only some very nice light reading on the subject from some nice sources, uh, happy to do some shout outs to some great sources like I Grow News, I Grow News, Urban Ag News, Urban Ag News, um, Vertical Farm Daily, Vertical Farm Daily, and that comes out of Holland, and that's an offshoot of Horty Daily. Those are great areas to start reading about the subject. And then, of course, uh, just learning more. You know, it's wonderful to get out and just Google some, and I I love dropping here in the U.S. the big three, Bowery, Plenty, and Arrow Farms. Go on out to their websites, see what they look like. Going out to Calera, which is a great new expansive startup here in the U.S. K.A.L.E.R.A. Uh, doing just incredible work. Something like six new indoor farms coming online with Calera uh, throughout the country and in Hawaii. And so, you know, let your fingers do the walking and 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 get out there and Google those guys. Do some reading with some of the sources. And I think that's a great way to start. If One final thing, if you don't mind, Bruce, some plugs for some great associations that bring people together, like the Farm Tech Society, which I actually am also an unofficial, I'm actually a little bit more, I'm an official advisor, I guess, ambassador to the Farm Tech Society. And they're trying to bring people together um, from a trade association, policy, curriculum, credentialing, working with uh, academia, and again, networking. And then, of course, I I have to do a shout out for Indoor AgCon, which is the large uh, gathering yearly that has been going on now for, gosh, almost a decade, seven, eight, nine years now. And Indoor AgCon's next live event will be in uh, Orlando, Florida at the Orlando Hilton on October 4th and 5th. And that brings together... A lot of these folks that we've been talking about live and in person for the first time since COVID and uh, Indoor AgCon, again, doing great, great things by bringing people together.
0: There's a, a tremendous uh, slew of references for anybody who's really interested in um, in getting into this field and and we'll try and put links to all of the publications and organization that Jim mentioned uh, on the episode notes attached to uh, to this episode. So thank you very much for your time and your insights today, Jim. Uh, I I really enjoyed a lot learning from you and and I certainly have learned a lot during the discussions that we've had. So thank you very much for for coming on the show today.
1: Bruce, thank you so much. And we are uh, lifelong learners. There's so much more learning to do and I'm so happy and proud and pleased that you've invited me onto the show today. So thank you very much.
0: Yeah, so thanks again, Jim. It was awesome. Thanks also to our
1: listeners. If you're
0: enjoying Side Dish, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes or by connecting with us on I- IFT. You can find us at IFT on Twitter or by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and LinkedIn. And for more information on this subject, be sure to visit our website at IFT.org and type in the subject that you're interested in in the search box to gain access to a ton of other resources. Thank you for listening to Side Dish. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin, and have a great day, everyone. Thank you.